Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel. My guest today is Russ Alsobrook, ASC, a cinematographer and director best known for his work on comedies like Superbad, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and Role Models, and for television series including Freaks and Geeks, Switched at Birth, and New Girl. He's also a frequent collaborator of writer-director Mike Binder, and today he's here to talk about their latest film together, Black or White. It tells the story of Elliot Anderson, a lawyer played by Kevin Costner, who is left to care for his mixed-race granddaughter Eloise after his wife is killed in a car crash. Elliot and his wife have been young Eloise's guardians since their daughter died in childbirth, but now the girl's paternal grandmother, Rowena, played by Octavia Spencer, steps in to challenge Elliot for custody. This premise serves as the springboard for a smart, funny, and provocative but sympathetic look at race and class that's also a first-rate family melodrama. It's also a riveting character study of two troubled men, Elliot and his nemesis, Eloise's father, Reggie. Their anguished interstates are subtly underlined and elaborated upon by Alsobrook's cinematography, which uses its widescreen aspect ratio to express the character's isolation, anger, and eventual mutual understanding. I'm thrilled to have him here to talk about the film. Uh, this was a movie that grabbed me both emotionally and visually right from the opening shot, which kind of stays out of focus for an abnormally long time before it eventually lands on Kevin Costner's grief-ridden face. And I was wondering if you remember where the idea to open the film that way came from. That opening was uh, Mike's idea from the very beginning. And originally the shot that we did was much longer. It was a very long tracking shot through the halls of the hospital. And we finally find Elliot and come into focus and we start to see the emotional um, state that he's in. Apparently in uh, some preliminary screenings, the audience didn't like the out of focus. I think the brain is trying to make it in focus and it became kind of disturbing to them, which was interesting because it is a, like a, a, a disturbing situation and we don't know what's happening. So um, that part was shortened to make it more palatable and yet it's still, I think, um, makes a statement about uh, Elliot's state of mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, the openings, that whole opening scene of the movie where uh, Elliot learns of his wife's death, it kind of sets the tone for a lot of what's to follow, particularly in the use of kind of formal widescreen compositions that isolate his character within the frame. You know, he's kind of, he's almost imprisoned by the frame the same way he's imprisoned by his loneliness and alcoholism, and he's, you know, isolated. Um, I have a few things I want to ask about here. First off, you know, when did you decide to go with the 240 frame as opposed to a narrower 185? Well, actually, on the day we did hair and makeup camera tests, uh, originally we were going to shoot 185. And at the last minute, Mike said, well, why don't we try 240? You know, it'll, it makes it look more like a movie. And I said, what the heck? Let's do it. Um, we were shooting on um, S by S cards, ProRes 444 on the uh, Aerie Alexa. And I was a little worried that uh, doing a 240 extraction might be a little much for that format, but uh, seems to work fine. And I, I saw the film at the Academy Theater, which is one of the biggest screening um, venues in 
all of Hollywood now, and it held up beautifully. So I think it was a wise decision. Yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, that, again, that, that wide frame, I think, allows you to do a number of things. Uh, aside from making Costner's character seem more isolated, you also, in a lot of scenes in the movie, right from the beginning, in this, for instance, uh, the scene between Elliot and his partner where they're talking, um, there's less kind of conventional coverage in a way than a lot of movies have. Like, you let scenes play out. Absolutely, and I, I think that was a great decision on Mike's part, and I and I support it a million percent. Is to let scenes play out in wide shots and masters and wide two shots, and you don't have to pop in for close-ups all the time. The audience knows exactly what's going on. They know who's talking. You can even play scenes of people walking away on their backs, you know, and just and just let it play instead of. Um, the, the cut, 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 close-up, choker, choker all the time, which drives me crazy, and I think that's an outgrowth of um, television editing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it works really beautifully. You have this kind of combination of very... Comp the compositions and the lighting are very precise, but you also kind of allow the audience to discover what they want to discover in the frame. Absolutely, and that's what people often forget. They, they think they have to lead the audience to, to every shot and every emotion and every nuance. And yet, in a two-shot, the audience can follow the action and go between the two people talking or decide to look at a reaction instead. And so it gives the audience the choice as to what to look at and what to follow and, and what to pay attention to. And I think that's, that's a wonderful technique to let the audience become more involved in the movie. Yeah, and I think in a movie like this, it also kind of is reflective of the whole point behind the screenplay, which is to honor multiple points of view. You know, I mean, it's not necessarily a movie where even though Kevin Costner is the, you know, the big star and he's the protagonist, it's definitely not a movie that's saying he's the guy who's always right. Like your sympathies shift continually. Oh, absolutely. And, and being that it's such a great ensemble cast, you know, your, um, your interests and your sympathies shift with the characters throughout the movie, not only within a scene, but, you know, throughout the whole film. I mean, because you, you're allowed to experience their points of view and their emotions based on every single scene that we did. I'm curious, when you first get a script like this, um, what's your initial process in terms of thinking about what kind of look you're going to come up with? I mean, the first time you read the script, are you just reading for story and emotion? Are you already thinking about visual ideas and technical things? I first read the script for the story and the emotional content, basically. Uh, and then let, uh, I've always said that the um, material informs the style. And after a while of several readings and talking to the director, then, then you start to formulate a style that will work to support the film and tell the story. You know, I, just, I can't stand when people impose a style on a story arbitrarily. You know, I think uh, the story will tell itself and will often tell you how it wants to be told. So, I mean, that's basically how I approach it. And you're, you're there to create a situation that portrays the emotions to the audience and not, you know, not with a sledgehammer. You know, do it simply and effectively and, and beautifully and... Let the audience understand, you know, intuitively and instinctually what they're supposed to get from the story. So along those lines, what, was, what were you thinking in terms of uh, how to, for example, with Elliot, Kevin Costner's character, how did you think about lighting and framing him to kind of express what was going on with his character and even, and even sort of show his evolution through the course of the movie? 
Well, he's a man who's very isolated at first. He, he's emotionally withdrawn. And uh, Mike and I thought that in his house, it would be semi-dark with the sunlight trying to spill in through the windows, but not quite, not quite making it, you know. So he's, um, he's closed in and he's living in the darkness of his, his grief. And so uh, we tried to emulate that feeling throughout the lighting in the house, especially during the first half of the movie. And then as he grows more confident and as he stops drinking and he's a more supportive of, of his granddaughter, which well, he always was, but now he's totally committed to that. You know, things lighten up um, and uh, there's more light coming into the house. And, and of course, when he travels to um, uh, the granddaughter's um, uh, grandmother's house in um, South Central Los Angeles, there's a lot more color and light and vibrancy and more life to the family there. And so um, one of the key items that I used for the lighting in Elliot's house during those first dark scenes was I, I requested that the um, window treatments be very thick and with three different layers of window treatment that I could modulate to allow just enough light in to feel the scene, but keep most, most of it out, or I could raise the shades and add more light, or I could open the curtains or close the curtains, or just use the shears. So we were using art direction uh, to help the lighting. And uh, that was allowed me to like blast 18Ks through the window, but only get just a tiny slice of life uh, from the light that came in, you know, from the little cracks in the um, curtains. So. Sometimes art directing uh, can help you with lighting in a tremendously supportive way. Well, it's interesting because I, I wanted to ask a little bit about that relationship between lighting and art direction and production design. Because another thing I noticed throughout the film is you use a lot of reflective surfaces, and and it's including a, like and a lot of the the floors are reflective, the tables are reflective when people are like in the lofts and stuff like that, and it creates this interesting kind of mirroring effect in a way of what's going on. And I was wondering. How much of that was something, you know, was, was that something that you discussed with the production designer or the prop department? I mean, how did you make, or, or was it, you know, luck in terms of the locations or how did, because it, it seemed like it was just, it was a very consistent uh, visual motif throughout the film. Well, I, I think it, a lot of it was serendipity, you know, the locations uh, lent themselves to that. And in and, and a lot of instances, I didn't light the scene at all. It's like um, Rowena's uh, meeting at her, um, her son's law office, which is surrounded by glass windows and it had a very reflective floor. And for most of the wide shots, we didn't light it at all. We just let it be as it was. It's my theory that if you go in there and the light looks perfect as is, don't muck it up, you know? And then we would come in for you know, closer shots with a little eye light or a little fill light or a little bounce card or something because the location and the lighting that existed on that day was so perfect. You know, you can't recreate that. So we just let it be. And the reflective aspect of uh, some of the other locations, I think, were helped by the fact that we were lighting through the windows and the shades just had enough um, illumination that they would reflect onto the tables or the floors or, or the, a lot of the glassware that we, we saw in Elliot's bar, which was certainly a an important uh, aspect of the art direction. So 
So that was uh, all these elements, you know, just sort of came together. And it's my theory that if you are on the right track emotionally with the story in your heart, then your cinematography will just follow naturally. You have to know the story so well that you just instinctually create this kind of a situation with the kind of lighting that will help enhance and accentuate what you're trying to say emotionally. Well, another thing I noticed on second viewing of the film was that the light, both light and, and color, you do a lot of things to kind of differentiate between the different environments. You touched on what you did differently with uh, Rowena's home in South Central versus uh, Elliot's home. And then you also ha do different things in the di their different environments, like the law office, the courtroom, where these characters' fates are going to be decided. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you differentiated between those environments. Well, like I mentioned, um, the Rowena's world is much more colorful. It's, it's brighter, it's more vibrant. And we, we differentiated between the two law offices, uh, not, not only in terms of the locations that were chosen, but the way that we were lighting them as well. Elliot's law office is, still has sort of a, a dark feeling to it. It's like they're in a little cave, you know, he's still um, withdrawn and the uh, other law office of the it's, uh, uh, the antagonist, if, if as it were, was open and bright and you know full of light uh, to mirror um, Rowena's world, also. And um, Elias was a more classically um, styled building. It was we actually shot it in a bank building, and the other law office was very stark and modern. So things like that all helped to contribute to the. Uh, the storytelling. How much involvement do you get to have in a movie like this with the location, the location scouts? I mean, and things like that. Like, because you, you the, um, I'm guessing from the way you're talking about this that a lot of the movie was shot on, uh, you know, pre-existing locations as opposed to sets. Um, how involved are you in the location scout? Do you get to actually see these places a lot ahead of time, or do you have to kind of come in and? Well, usually. Um... I would have more prep time on a movie like this. Um, they had allowed um, four weeks for my prep, but I was finishing up another movie, and so I could only have two weeks. But they sent me um, location stills from all the possibilities that they were looking at, so I helped um, narrow them down to the, to the final choices, and then when I got to location, um, I was able to, to work with them and, and uh, finalize the locations and determine, you know, our stylistic approach to each location. And uh, the entire movie was shot on location in New Orleans, and they were all actual locations. There were no sets. So it's it's set in L.A., but you shot New Orleans, which I'm presuming is probably tax credits or something Absolutely. like that. Yes. Um, and so what are the challenges in terms of that, or what are you thinking as far as doubling New Orleans for L.A.? I mean, is there any, do, do you notice are there different things about the light in New Orleans as opposed to here? And that, do you have to accommodate for that at all? Well, luckily, um, we didn't have that many exterior scenes, which really helps. Uh, and we shot in, in midsummer in New Orleans, so the light generally during that time is horrible because the sun is directly overhead for much, much of the day. And also there's a difference in quality of light and air because of humidity down there. So... Um, we did the usual things. We had to avoid um, oak trees with, you know, Spanish moss and and hope there was a palm tree stuck around here and there to remind us of L.A. But I think overall, 
they chose exterior locations that um, worked well for LA and I've, I've talked to people who have seen the movie and they uh, it, it never question whether it's in LA or not. So that worked very well. And you mentioned uh, shooting on the Alexa. How did you come to decide on that? Well, we um, were discussing shooting on film for quite a long time. Um, and then almost at the last minute, I, uh, Mike had been sort of ambivalent about you know film versus Alexa. And I know that when Mike looks at the monitor, he wants to see the way the shot is really going to look from the lighting to the details and art direction to the way the skin tones are on the, on the actors. And I think shooting the Alexa allowed him to see, it, see the movie the way it was going to really be instead of having to wait for dailies and um, you know the usual um, film-based protocol. But we did consider film very, very seriously. In fact, the movie that I finished just before Black or White was shot on film. And I still love both formats, but I thought this movie for Mike needed to be shot on Alexa. The last movie we did together was Rain Over Me, and we shot that with the uh, Genesis camera. And that was our really our first foray into the digital world, and this was back in 06. Uh, well, you mentioned the, the skin tones of the actors, and I was curious uh, just to ask about how you light your performers, because I think everybody in this movie looks fantastic, but not in an artificial or overly glamorous way. Um, so what's your approach to lighting the actors? Well, uh, my overall approach in lighting in general is what I like to call enhanced naturalism. And I like to make the lighting look as invisible as possible. I mean, I don't go in for the, you know, turbocharged cinematography that we see in a lot of movies. I'd like to make it look like that's just the way it looked when we were there in real life and we didn't even light it, you know. Um, I mean, there might be a couple of more stylized shots that we did, but for the most part, I wanted it to look natural and I think the, that works well when you're lighting people as well. You're right, it didn't have a, a very glamorous, you know, Hollywood studio look and yet the people did look good. But I did modulate the light with Elliot throughout the movie because at the beginning, he's in such a, an emotional, um, distraught place, and he's drinking heavily, and I wanted him to look a little bit haggard. Not, not too much, but just enough. You know, so you see the bags under his eyes, and you see how tired he is and how, how distraught he is. And then as the movie progresses, then we gave him a little more fill light and brought the key light around a little flatter, and I was still trying to uh, you know, have enough modeling but you know, just trying to help him out a little bit as his, as his character grows into a, a better place. Um, I'm curious how you see your role on a movie like this in terms of relating to the actors, because it's obviously you know, a very character-driven film, and it's sort of a difficult film in terms of the performances, because A, you've got some very emotional material, very sensitive material. You've also got a prominent actress in the film who's very young. They, actress who plays Eloise. Um, so what's your role as cinematographer in terms of helping facilitate those actors giving the, doing their best work? I think my role in working with the actors is to, number one, create an environment that is very comfortable uh, and make it as easy as possible on them. So that, and, and they're all professionals and they know 
where their marks are and, and which way to look towards the camera and you know where their key light is and they know how to play that but you try to do it you try to make their environment so uh, easy and comfortable and natural that all they have to do is think about the scene and the acting you know I mean sometimes on in very crucial lighting we have to ask the actors to be sure and turn your face you know 90 degrees this way when you're looking at so and so all this stuff and which I really I hate to do if, if, if it can be avoided and I like to set up the lighting so that when they're ready to do a scene that's all they have to think about so I think that's that's part of my role I'm not I don't like a, to futz around once we're ready to go the lighting does not change and I think actors uh, become so irritated and I think it's damaging to their performance when when uh, a DP has to go and futz around between every take because he, he sees something that he doesn't like you know, and sometimes the, the, they don't understand the priorities of what is really important at the time, you know. And once, once you say, we're ready to go, then you step back. Uh, it's not your set anymore. It's the actor's set, and just let them have it. Well, the thing that I think keeps coming up here is that you seem to be the kind of filmmaker who, rather than trying to control and impose yourself on whatever you're shooting, you're responding to what you're shooting. And I'm wondering if... That comes from your documentary background. Does that inform how you shoot dramatic films? Well, I think that uh, is definitely a factor. I mean, I learned quite a bit yeah. in the documentary world. I learned what you can get away with and what, what you can do with, with less. And I still kind of have that uh, philosophy that, that less is more. If I, can, if I can do the scene with one light, fine. If I can do it with no lights, fine. You know, I try to keep lighting to a minimum in, in, in many ways. Or like I said, I try to keep the lighting invisible. But it's, I think it's also uh, just part of my general personality. You know, I'm not um, an absolute control freak about every detail of what's going on. I like to hire uh, people who uh, know more than I do. You know, and I, you know, get out of their way and let them do their job. And then they're invested in the in the film as much as I am. So, I mean, that's just that's just part of my approach to the to the lighting and the framing and the composition and everything else. And how about camera movement? Did you have any sort of guiding principles in terms of when and how you would move the camera in this movie? Well, we didn't want to have any um, gratuitous camera moves. I think the camera moves when it's necessary, when you're following somebody through the house. Or we did a couple of just little you know, push-ins on, on Elliot just to help you know, emphasize what he's thinking about. But for the most part, the camera can also uh, be very, uh, be very quiet, and just let the audience drink in the scene that we're watching, or or revel in the silent close-up of Elliot as as he's thinking or going through some kind of terrible agony. You know, the camera doesn't have to do very much if you have wonderful actors and a great story in front of the lens. Oh, I mentioned earlier that whole mirroring effect that you have in the movie throughout with the reflective surfaces and that sort of matches up with something thematically in the movie which is in a way Elliot's character and the character of uh, Reggie his son-in-law you know they're 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 both enemies and yet they're kind of mirror images of each other I mean they're both these troubled troubled men you know Elliot is an alcoholic Reggie's drug addict all that kind of thing and I was wondering um, did you think about how to present those characters in ways that would either Undermine, underline their similarities or play up their differences? I think I was um, thinking more about their similarities in, in our approach. 
to the cinematography and also in Mike's approach to directing. Um, tell me a little bit about your approach to color in the movie. There are some really wonderful, wonderful effects early on in the movie where you alternate between blue light and, and the, that kind of golden light that you were talking about, you know, with the sun sort of peeking in um, in different scenes depicting Costner's everyday life. And I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about what your thought process was in terms of how you used color in the movie. Well, as you know from seeing the film, the sw swimming pool plays a very important role. And not to give anything away, it becomes a character in itself. And we wanted to bring that character into the house by way of the reflected blue light from the pool. So that's why so often when Elliot is by the bar or by a window or even outside by the pool, you get that reflected blue light on his face and even coming into the house. Um, so that is like a foreshadowing of what might take place later in the movie. Right. And of course, then the, uh, the golden light is a, is a perfect um, foil for the, for the blue light. And I always like scenes to feel warmer and flesh tones to feel warmer. And also um, because we had a lot of black actors and actresses that warm reflected light looks wonderful on their skin as well. You've uh, worked, as I mentioned, several times with Mike Binder. You, you mentioned Rain Over Me, and you did um, Mind of the Merry Man together. What, uh, what do you feel constitutes a sort of successful director-cinematographer relationship? Like with someone like him, who you obviously have a very productive collaboration with, what is it that makes it work? Both of us understanding uh, the emotional content of the story, being on the same page with that, um, setting up a visual style in advance, and agreeing on it and just being able to go with it, you know? And after a while, uh, the communication can be very minimal because he knows what I'm gonna do and I know how he's gonna approach the scene and um, we discuss it and then just set it up and, and shoot. It's very easy. Um, in addition to uh, shooting the new girl as a uh, cinematographer. You've directed a couple episodes of that, right? Yes, I just finished directing my third episode this last week, as a matter of fact. And so has directing on that show affected your your work as a cinematographer at all? I mean, in other words, do you look at your job as a cinematographer any differently, having been in that role? Well, I'll tell you, the one thing that it really has taught me is now I really see why directors get impatient <laughs> and when they're waiting for lighting and when the DP comes out and messes with things uh, after you've started a scene because um, I can see it much more clearly from a director's perspective and I think I will be more patient with directors from this point on. Uh, well, I guess I want to just wrap up by asking about uh, post on black or white. Um, did you, was there any work, you know, how much of the movie did you pretty much just have once you got it on set? I mean, was there any, was there anything done in the DI or anything like that to significantly alter any scenes? No, the DI basically um, followed what we had done on set. You know, with my DIT, we set looks, you know, for the whole movie based on the philosophy that we talked about earlier. And uh, the DI was basically just fine tuning. So um, it was a very, very um, easy process. And Photochem, uh, did the DI, and Photochem New Orleans did the dailies. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me about the movie. Well, my pleasure. This has been Russ Alsobrook, ASC, and Jim Hemphill talking about Black or White for the American Cinematographer podcast.
This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 